Welcome to The Creator's Adventure, where we interview creators from around the world hearing their stories about growing a business. Today's guest is a veteran internet marketer who built multiple seven-figure businesses, and he did it without paid advertising. He's going to share the story with us of exactly how he did that today. Hey everyone, I'm Brian McAnulty, the founder of Heights Platform. Let's get into it. Hey everyone. We're here today with Ron Douglas. He is the president of Automated Profits, a digital marketing company established in 2001, which has created multiple seven-figure brands, including WebinarCon, the number one mastermind event for webinar marketers. Ron is also the New York Times bestselling author of America's Most Wanted Recipes, a cookbook series which has sold over 1.5 million copies. He has worked on Wall Street for J.P. Morgan and Citibank. However, in 2007, he left a promising career and six-figure job to work from home and spend more time with his kids. Today, Ron enjoys helping students worldwide to use the internet to earn more, work less, and have a greater impact. Ron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. So my first question for you today is, what would you say is the biggest thing that either you did or you are doing that has helped you to achieve freedom to do what you enjoy? The biggest thing that I did, I would say just building an audience, building a community that kind of led to everything else. I started my career as an affiliate, but I was doing list building and I would promote affiliate offers, but that kind of, that skill propelled me just knowing how to build an audience, knowing how to bond with that audience, knowing how to monetize that audience those things I learned early on and I still use to this day and it opened a lot of doors for me. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, so I'm surprised that that's different than we've gotten from other people, but like the audience is so powerful to have that. Um, so, so it's interesting to mention that you, you really did grow the audience then kind of before your own business, since you said you started kind of as affiliate. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's it's always interesting to see like the two paths. The one is like like something somebody like a YouTube creator, for example, like they have the audience first. But then there's a lot of solo entrepreneurs where they say, I'm going to make this product and they don't have the audience yet. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting. OK, well, um, we got a lot to cover, though. So before we, we go deeper into that, um, before you started your businesses, you worked on Wall Street for J.P. Morgan and for Citibank. And in 2007, you, you left this promising career and six-figure job to work from home. So now this is like a common, much more common thing. Um, but in 2007, I can imagine that you're more like the exception to the rule. So what would you say like pushed you into taking that step? And how did you handle the transition? I got laid off. <laughs> I wish I could say that. Okay. I, okay. You know, I wish I could say that I walked into the office and told my boss to shove it and walked out of there and, you know, it's happily ever, ever after. But no, I so I was planning for it. So I think I kind of manifested my own layoff. So mm -hmm. <laughs> so the way it was working was uh, I had my business going part time. I started in 2001. I didn't leave the corporate world until 2007. So I had my business going the whole time. And I was actually at one point making more towards the end. I was making more from the business than the job, but I had, you know, small child at home. I was married. I had a house. I had a responsibility. So I, I wasn't ready to leave. So, but I had 
uh, a date set. So I was going to leave February 2008, no matter what. So every day I would come in and I had this little post-it note on my uh, desk that said February 2008. And that was the day. I looked at it every day. I'm going to leave this thing. You know, that was, I was getting up the courage to do it. I was saving money and I was planning to do it. And they did me a favor by laying me off in 2007, July 2007. And it was crazy because they did this right before. So I, we were expecting our second child. Literally, my wife was eight months pregnant at home. And I had to call her and say I lost my job, got mm -hmm. laid off. And, and wow. she was just so supportive. She's like, you know, this is what you wanted. Like, I believe in you. Just go for it. You know, work on your business now. So that's what I did. Never looked back. Never went on another interview. Took my little severance and... And I was off to the races. And then after that, all type of doors opened up for me in terms of meeting people, getting a book deal, uh, doing my own events, all type of stuff happened. It's like funny when you're able to take meetings at 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. when you don't have this job to focus on. You, you talk with other people, I guess, in that same circumstance, other entrepreneurs, and you start making connections and, and uh, it works out for you. Cool. Yeah, yeah, I think that um it's uh it's hard when you're you're still thinking about maybe making that that leap um and preparing for it, but I I think there is some amount of like hope hopefully we can inspire others maybe still in that path where they they have this job that they're they're planning to quit and um wondering how that's going to go when when you have those extra hours to be able to like have those meetings like you're saying and, and talk with other people um it can really open up a lot of opportunities um all right yeah. so you don't then, have to be a hero like you don't have to just quit with mm -hmm. no plan b i mean save your money like you know you can do this stuff part-time while you're building up your your asset so if you have so i would say if you have responsibilities right if you have a family mm -hmm. if you have a mortgage payment all that type of stuff I would say you want to leave when you have at least six months of income saved up and you also have an asset that continues to make money. So in my case, I had, you know, at that time I had 175,000 email subscribers for this business. So I knew I could make yeah, money, huge. continue to make money. So I was super uh, risk-free <laughs> when I did it. And it still felt crazy. It still felt like, oh my God, this is, I don't know what's going to happen, you know, and mm. until I settled in and calmed down and I'm like, well, this business is still going to make money. I'm still Ron Douglas. I still have my connections. I still have my name and, and, um, it's going to be just fine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because like 100% I, I am, I do want to motivate everybody listening or watching this to become an entrepreneur if they want to do that. Um, but I'm not trying to suggest, uh, to, uh, forget about our responsibilities and, and take these massive risks and like, I, I can share that I, I feel that in some ways I'm very risk averse myself that um, I never had a traditional job, but before like building Heights platform, I did have other businesses that were bringing in income. And so like our story was starting as this web design studio and we wanted to build our own products, get away from client work. And we, we slowly shifted it like 50, 50. And then eventually I had e-commerce businesses and other things that were bringing in income. So I would be able to take that time to focus on what I wanted to build. Um, so having that savings, having some source of, of income or an asset with you really 
makes a difference and, and takes a lot of the, the risk away there. Absolutely. So you turned your hobby of cooking into a multi-million dollar business. That's an incredible achievement. Can you walk us through the process of transforming that passion into a best-selling cookbook? And I guess what would you say is like the, the biggest wins and challenges you encountered along the way? Mm. Well, I, um, so I, I started out just selling an ebook, right? Selling an ebook. And I had a really good uh, kind of blue ocean niche, right? Really good opportunity where um, I was selling restaurant recipes. Like my cookbook, my old niche was copycat restaurant recipes. So I was able to kind of piggyback off the restaurant dishes, the names of the restaurants, all that type of stuff to say, like, here's my version of these recipes. And um, at the time, so I started out as an affiliate on ClickBank. And then the light bulb moment, I said, you know, if I had my own product with a all these other affiliates promoting me, I could benefit off the efforts, benefit from the efforts of many people instead of just my own. And I, that was my like, I first idea was like, I'm interested in cooking. What can I do related to cooking? Um, I used to follow uh, Corey Rudel back in the days. I don't know if you remember him. He was the Internet Marketing Center. He was one of the original online marketing gurus, I guess, teaching digital marketing early on before we even called it digital marketing. Right back in the days, and um, they used to go around the country doing uh, they kind of like on tour, doing events in different cities, teaching online marketing. And uh, one of his big niches was car secrets, right? So he used to teach people secrets to uh, buying cars affordably and different things like that. That was one of his little, little like example niche sites that he would uh, teach. So I said, okay, I'm into cooking. What can I do? Cooking secrets, recipe secrets. Oh, secret recipes. So I discovered this kind of secret recipe niche, started this website, recipesecrets.net, and started uh, actively recruiting affiliates to promote our little uh, ebook. And it was a $20 ebook. We were giving away 75% on ClickBank. But over time, that product became the number one product in the cooking category for ClickBank. And it held that spot for like years, for like three or four years. And um, one of the things I did right was people that landed on the site that didn't want to buy the cookbook, uh, we would offer them sample recipes to get on our email list. So that's how I was able to build this big email list. And also I caught a huge trend early on was really at the start of uh, Google AdWords back then. Google advertising was just getting started and recipe related keywords you can bid and and get traffic for like five and 10 cents a click back then. It was just an amazing time. And I started doing that. I started reinvesting a lot of the profits back into that because I still had a job. I was doing all this part time. So the money from the business, I would just reinvest back into the business to keep building, keep running ads. And then um, affiliates started to catch on. And I had some really big affiliates, like big advertising, Google advertising client, like uh, corporate type customers that would uh affiliates that would promote my thing and just blow it up so it was a good time like sometimes i would wake up to thousands of dollars from these guys just like scaling their ads because it was wow. traffic was so cheap so that was one of the things i did right um and then we turned it into a physical cookbook i started selling it on amazon and this was all before i had the book deal this was all self-published so that worked out right um i would say one of the things i did wrong and it haunted me still to this day was um, 
I originally had a partner in this business, right? And we, when I was doing the affiliate marketing, we had we were building email lists together, right? So I came up with this cookbook idea. I had put it out on ClickBank myself. I published the book myself. I wrote it myself. And um, one of my big mistakes was I started promoting it to that list that me and this partner had together. And then it kind of became our product together. Like we started focusing on marketing. Even though I was the author of it, I should have had something in writing saying, listen, this is my book. I'm the author of it. I'm just using this company as a means to promote it. So long story short, me and him had a big falling out. Um, We didn't properly dissolve the company that we had together. And we still had this LLC agreement from 2001. And he was able to come back later on after he seen me getting on television, selling all these books, becoming a New York Times bestseller. He was able to come in later on and sue me, sue Simon and Schuster, sue like he just sued everybody. And his wow. friend was a lawyer, so I think they were doing it pro bono. I think he was kind of mm. down on his luck and uh, just saw an opportunity. And he he sued me. <laughs> I, I was I might be the only person you know that was sued at the same time in in the Nassau County Court like the county court and also in federal court. So Nassau County Court, he sued me for uh, competing with the company, even though we had long kind of like stopped working with each other. He just saw an opportunity. So I was being sued there and I was being sued in the uh, federal court for common law trademark. We didn't have a trademark. It was common law trademark and and copyright. So he saw Simon & Schuster was in on it and his lawyers just saw an opportunity and um, so they ended up, I ended up winning that case, but that dragged on for, for many years. So I would say that was yeah, yeah. my one big regret was not getting the legal stuff in order early on. Like we were printing off, uh, you know, out of the box legal agreements from the internet for free. I should have been hiring, I like had a lawyer retained to look everything over instead of just, you know, kind of winging it myself. Uh, yeah. So so to solve that, you'd say like just getting a lawyer involved to to get some of that paperwork all set in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, I would say you know have a, it doesn't cost much to have a lawyer look things over, especially with a partnership. So I would say two things: understand that a partnership is like a marriage, but it's not just a marriage; it's a marriage when where after so so think of it this way: you're in a marriage and you have this baby, like this baby is your business. And this baby, you're nurturing it, you're building it up, you're spending a lot of time with this baby. And then after the marriage is over, the only way to conclude things is you buy him out, he buys you out, or you kill that baby. (laughs) The baby must go, right? So you got it's a divorce. The baby either has to go or, or one person has to buy that baby, the other person has to buy it. So it's like, it's worse than a divorce, right? It's like a lot on the lines. And you don't realize how impactful all this stuff is and how important it is to have things in order until you start making money. Like friendships fall apart, you know, yeah. things get strained. The money complicates everything, and especially when they see you off on your own making money and they just see you as an opportunity. So that's what it was. And, you know, you got to watch out who you partner with. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I had some experiences in my, my web design business where it, it didn't work out great that uh, it, it reminds me of like similar similar things. And I, I said to myself, like, man, if I had like, I remember actually that 
one thing that ended up turning into a, a big problem and, and turning into a lawsuit, which it, it worked out in my favor and, and we didn't do anything wrong. It ended up that I'm thinking like, man, if only like these new contracts that we had, if only like this client signed that contract and not the one that they had before, because like the new contract basically said like, you can't be that guy. <laughs> and mm. um, we, we just didn't, didn't have it all set yet. Um, so that, that would have made the whole thing, I think, easier for us too. So uh, mm. I, can, I can definitely relate to that and it is important. Yeah, folks just have to know, like you can't get to millions without going through something. Right. It's yeah, something. It, it will whether, happen. Whether right. Definitely. Whether it's lawsuits, it's just part of the game, whether it's lawsuits or, or you know, government officials, chunk, FTC or, or different IRS. Or it's always, I don't know any entrepreneur that got to millions that didn't have to deal with something like problematic, something stressful. So it's just part of the game. And, and the more, the higher you ascend, the more of a target you become, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always, uh, I've mentioned this before, but but one of the things I really enjoyed reading by uh, Tim Ferriss was this blog post he had of the art of letting bad things happen. And I think that's so important to like understand as an entrepreneur that if you want more good things to happen, undoubtedly like more bad things will happen. And you have to learn to become comfortable with that and not say like, oh, there's this thing, it's a potential legal issue. And then you don't want that to completely just freeze you from being able to move forward because inevitably as you grow if you think of a, a company out there that that you know about that's a major brand like they have legal issues it's something that happens it's just it's going to come up at some point uh, regardless of of what you're trying the best thing you can do is to prepare yourself to have the the paperwork in place to make it less appealing or or less easy for somebody to want to start to go after you Right. And it's more, you know, it's more than just legal too. It's it's also just yeah. sometimes that you have bad business ideas. Sometimes you have projects that you spend money on that don't pan out, you know, and it's like you have to get through a lot of the failure, like you're saying, to get to the success. You know, you have to know what not to do in order to find that thing that, that's working. Very few people just start a business and hit a home run right away without, you know, going through some type of uh, trial and error or tribulations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always like to say like, I I prefer to have to go through the failures first because if you really get lucky and hit the home run, then it's kind of scary because you don't know what to do next and you can really easily, you haven't messed everything up yet. So now you're going to go and mess everything up. It's a lot easier if you figure out all the things that you can do wrong and, and fail at. So then when you do hit the home run, now you know what to do like to continue growing. For sure. Cool. So yeah, you sold... 1.5 million copies of that cookbook series. So it sounds like you would say like the affiliate marketing, that was probably like the, the main driver of like, as far as like the marketing tactics that you used. Well, yeah, just being an affiliate marketer, you have to, you know, learn how to market things efficiently because you only, you don't get a hundred percent of the, uh, the, the profit. You just get like whatever your percentage is. So sometimes if you're getting 50%, you have to be, double as good as as if you were getting 100%, right? So you learn how to market things, you learn how to promote things. I think that's a good foundation. A lot of people start that way in this business. But the, you know, yeah. the big money is in having your own products, I believe, and having your own um, things to sell. So yeah, that helped. I mean, building lists, learning list building, as I mentioned, definitely helped. And that helped me get the book deal. Like I would have never got a book deal. Like I was self publishing for many years. I, I started the cookbook thing in 2000, late 2003. 
and I didn't get the book deal until 2008. And the book was published in 2009. But by the time I had the book deal, it was easy for me to get a deal because I had a platform. I had an audience. I had um, a means to sell books. I was I was a low risk proposition for them. I had mm-hmm. a so they took my my self published book and they published it in bookstores. So I had a proven entity because I had sold sixty thousand copies on my own during that time. So I have a, a proven product and I had an audience and I had you know a, a means they knew I would be able to sell my own books. So it was a very low risk proposition for Simon and Schuster, which is um, you know why the first my first book deal they gave me a six figure advance to do two books, and then they gave me another six figure advance to do two more books once those books became successful, and then they gave me another like two hundred thousand dollar advance for my third deal. So I had three separate deals with uh, wow. with Simon and Schuster with that. Uh, so it was a uh, good times. Wow! Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I only have experience with that at a much, much smaller scale, but uh, my wife has a, a book that was published. And yeah, when, you, when you're working with a publisher, you really see that they want to see how it's going to make sense for them to make that investment. Because the way that they're thinking about it is they have to go through this process and they're, they're going to be spending money on designing it, getting it in the bookstores, all that kind of thing, and printing it. And so they want to know that if we're going to print X copies, like what's the chance that we're going to actually sell them and make money? And when someone like yourself can say like, hey, I sold 60,000 already, then 100% they know that there is profit there for them to go and publish something. And yeah, so yeah, that's excellent. So all right, moving forward, um, you then kind of decided to shift your focus into helping others earn more in their business. um, And you founded WebinarCon. So um, that you turned into a seven figure brand in just six months, which is really impressive. How did you manage to grow that so fast? And is it kind of some of the same strategies or did you do anything different with that? That was a little different by that time, you know, WebinarCon, the first one was uh 2020 actually it was five days before the pandemic. So the place that we did it in the venue that we did it in shut down five days later wow. after that first event. And uh, so we had Purell on all the tables. We didn't know what was coming. This was right before COVID, but we knew something bad was coming and we wanted to, you know, make sure everybody's hands was clean and that type of stuff. And um, that I would say the the way we worked that was the way I got into webinars was uh, after the the lawsuit thing happened, uh, my lawyer advised me like, hey, you know, who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what the judge is going to say? You're probably going to win this case, but any money that you continue to make in the cooking space is kind of on the table for this lawsuit. So I had to leave that stuff alone. And then, but people wanted to know, like, how did you do all this stuff? How did you, you know, sell so many books? How did you get on TV? How did you self publish? How did you get a book deal? So I started teaching that stuff. And that's how I kind of discovered webinars because I was an online marketer the whole time, but I saw that webinars were really hot. It was kind of like the start of when webinars really got popular, like around 2010 ish, you know, 2010, 2011. And, um, a lot of my friends were doing webinars. So I started doing them, started selling courses and got really good at it. And I started meeting all of the promoters in the webinar market and we would do swaps and I would go to events and stuff and, and that's how, so, so when, I, when we launched WebinarCon, I already had a network 
of people. So folks would go to different events, the big events, and you know you would have to kind of find the people you want to network with. But there's like a million newbies and folks that you don't necessarily want to, you know, do lunch with or network with or mastermind with. So you have to find the folks. But at WebinarCon, the topic of webinars and the price point, it's a $5,000 event. And the people, you know, it's just the people that go there are just higher level folks. So they're all in one room, right? You're sitting right next to Perry Belcher or, or Rich Sheffrin or Jason Flatland or, you know, they're in the room with you. You know, so that they, we created that environment and it helped having um, Onyx Sengal as a partner. I kind of uh, approached him with the idea early on and he was uh, well-known, well-respected, uh, still is an uh, online marketer. So that first event, people just wanted to go. It was like, hey, we're having this mastermind, weekend mastermind, come by, everybody's going there. And the more people we started sharing like this person's going this person's going it became like a must-go event like everybody's mm -hmm. going i gotta be there so it kind of dominoed that way and um it created a lot of momentum because people loved it they just love being in that environment of you know you, like you go to normal events and they're telling you oh, this is what a funnel is you go to webinar con it was showing you data on how to improve your conversion you know it starts out just high level the whole time there's no like kind of talking at a at a remedial level to folks. So they, they just like that whole aspect of being able to, you know, people have come to that event and like made millions actually. Like we've had people say like they would come there, they have like say events in November, they would have a launch in January or February. They would come there and recruit affiliates like crazy and then have like multi-million dollar launch. And a lot of it was from the people that they, you know, shook hands with at, at WebinarCon. So that's that type of event. And we kind of found a good niche, found a good angle, and um, it's just an easy thing for us to promote. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so much value in that. Um, and like, yeah, for me, last year I went to this conference, I got to talk with the uh, one of the co-founders of ClickUp and like, that was so valuable to me. I feel like, like just the conversation alone, like that was more than worth like the ticket price, you know? And I, I think it's interesting that, that you mentioned this because even if you're watching or listening to this and you're not saying, you're, you're saying like, well, okay, that's cool. But like in my business, I don't really see myself making like an, an event like this, like an in-person event. I think it still speaks to the power of like building a community. And even if you want to build like an online community, that being able to bring people at a similar skill level with a similar interest all together is is so valuable and because we we spend so much effort trying to find that right and trying to make those connections online so if you can facilitate that for people with your audience that's really really powerful yeah so we've never run ads for webinar con we we don't have to pay speakers we don't you know people pay us to be on stage so we we spend like all of our expenses are covered by sponsors now it's just a, an amazing thing that we built from scratch with no real upfront investment, just having a community, having that network and just word of mouth and reaching out to people like, hey, here's what we're doing. Check it out. Come through. Here's who else is going. All the cool kids are going to be there. And But you can do a similar thing if you had a, you know, even if you had a Facebook group on a given topic, right, and you got everybody interested, high level folks interested in that topic and then that they they feel like, okay, this is our group. And then you say, okay, we're having this event for this group. 
and everybody in this group's going to be there. Like, and then people start saying, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. Before you know it, that social proof pulls everybody in and then you have an event that's like packed and then you can keep doing it year after year. So it's not like magic. It's just consumer psychology and it's just a, a value offering of, you know, people want to be around like-minded people that are doing exciting things and people that are accomplishing things that they want to accomplish and people that they know, right, are doing those exciting things. So. Yeah, well, that's even more impressive because I didn't know that. I would have guessed that you spent some money on advertising at least. And um, so that's uh, that's crazy. And I think that should be even more inspirational to anybody considering something similar, that the the possibility of, of where you are able to grow it without spending money on a bunch of marketing. That's really incredible. Um, all right, I'm curious, kind of like with webinars, what would you say is like, is there anything that would change going forward that you see of like how people should think about doing or like holding a, a webinar for their business if they're selling a, a course or a coaching product? And I guess I'm asking that because like you mentioned, like 2010 webinars became this big thing. I think there was like a lot of, a lot of hype about it and being this new thing. It's like, wow, I'm, I'm attending a webinar. Right. And, and now you're, you're so surrounded by, by all these possible ads and people pitching you things. Um, it's not the, the same like novel, like new approach, I guess as much. Um, but I still think there's a lot of power in it. So like nowadays, if, if you wanted to hold a webinar, like would anything change in your, your marketing for promoting that? Yeah. Like you said, I mean, back then it was easy to get people on a webinar. It was just like a thing. Like Just like when email first came out, people looked forward to opening their emails. Now they've been bombarded with a thousand emails, but what makes them open one email versus another, right? It's it's the person that it's from, and it's also the subject line, the, the topic, right? The same thing with webinars. What makes someone interested in the webinars? The, the person that's doing it, if they know that person, have a relationship with that person, and also the topic, the hook. So it's like, what is your hook? Is it something that taps in to something that they want to know about? Like, is it something that's current, something that's hot, something that's trending? Is it is it something that they feel like they don't want to miss? You know, if if it's just another webinar, then it's, they can miss it. But if it's something that, hey, you got to be here for this, you know, this is the thing. Like right now, AI, everybody's talking about AI. So AI is some of the easiest stuff to promote. I also promote webinars as an affiliate and um, people are taking old outdated like topics and then slapping AR on it. So I just promoted one the other day. It was like um, how to get, uh, how to build digital real estate uh, using uh, Google free traffic from Google and press releases and different things like that. And that was an old topic. Like, you know, if I would have just promoted just that, if they would have just went with just that topic, show up rate would have been low. But they said, and you can do it using AI content. And all of a sudden, it's a new thing. Oh, AI content. You can do it without writing the content yourself, or without paying for writers. So you got to know what excites your market. And you have to know, you have to know your, your audience, right? What makes them tick? What makes them take action? What makes them want to stop what they're doing and show up for something? And that, that, that's how you get people on. I mean, you just have to have a, a good hook. And the other part of it is you have to have a, a good process for following up. You know, we tend to use, uh, well, we like to use multiple uh, marketing channels. 
you know, you have your email, you have SMS text, you have Facebook group or you have Instagram page or you have your YouTube channel. So the more you put it out there as this is an exciting event, people can sense your enthusiasm for it. The more it gets people wanting to uh, to come on it and the more different multiple channels that you use, uh, the better you're able to reach people because some people prefer one over the other. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's excellent points because they're like for, for anyone, I, I think it's a mistake that, that newer entrepreneurs tend to make is that they, they tell everybody about their offer once and then they're done. They say, Oh, some people didn't buy it as much as I thought, but you have to keep letting them know because they, they may really want to buy it. They just forgot they went on with their, the rest of their life. But like, uh, you send them that email and then later if they see it's on Instagram too, they, they get reminded of it and they're like, Oh wow. Like Ron's really doing this thing right now. This is, this is the big thing that's really happening. And getting, getting that follow up really can make a huge difference. And especially even just with email alone, like uh, I tell people that often, like the last time you send an email about the promo will do more sales for you than the first time that you send it. So right. you Deadline send it day. once and you, you send it a couple of times, remind everybody and you say, Hey, it's going to end. And then that's when everybody buys. But a lot of people make the mistake of, of never sending that reminder or that follow up. So yeah, that's uh that's interesting. All right. And, and definitely, I think I can also attest to the, the hook and the figuring out what the market's interested in. Um, the AI is a great example. It's such a hot topic right now. And like, we've seen like course creation and like the idea of becoming a, a course creator, for example, like that's not as, as popular or hyped up as it was in like 2020. Mm-hmm. And, but now you add AI to that. It's a, it's a whole new thing. Everybody wants to, <laughs> to hear about it. And like, um, so like we, we have these AI features in our product now and suddenly like there's all these people discovering us from searching for that specifically. And um, yeah, so I think if you're, if you're not getting the connection that you, you feel you could, but you have the audience, think about what, what it is that they're excited about that everybody's talking about right now. Yeah. AI is funny. Have you ever seen the movie Half-Baked? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. So you wouldn't get the reference. There was a reference where, so John Stewart was in the movie um, Half-Baked. He had like a cameo. And mm-hmm. so Half-Baked, everybody was, you know, high and smoking. It was a movie about weed or whatnot, right? So they all, they're all high and whatnot. And John Stewart is talking to Dave Chappelle and he's like, have you ever seen a dollar bill? Like, it's freaky. You look in the background in the picture and Dave Chappelle says, yes, I've ever, I've seen a dollar bill. And he's like, have you ever seen a dollar bill on weed? Like, and he's showing him that and he's like, oh my God, this looks different now. So it's like, AI mm. is like that thing, you know, it just makes Looks everything different, yeah. <laughs> different and enhances everything and makes everything more, more uh, appealing, I suppose. So you have to find what is the AI for your industry or what is the hot thing you can add to your thing that take an old hook and just change it into something super sexy that people got to know about. Yeah, definitely. Sorry All for right, that so- bad reference. If you haven't seen the movie, it makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> Um, I've heard of the movie, I think, so I'm, I'm sure some people will, will know it. Um, so on the show, I like to ask every guest to have a question for the audience. So if you could ask our audience anything, whether 
it's something that you're just genuinely curious about or something that you kind of want them to like think about. It's more of an introspective question. What would that be? Mm. If I could ask the audience any question. Um, well, I'd be curious as to, you know, I'm always curious as to what people's kind of like breaking point is in terms of what they've tried, right? So, so with an audience, usually, you know, you have people that are just getting started or people that buy courses and, and just follow different gurus and jump on from one thing to the next. So I'm always curious, like how long, like if you buy a course or try something new, how long do you give yourself to try to make it work? Are you a person that focuses on it and I'm just going to stick with this until it works? Or you are, are you the type or are you the type of person that's like, okay, I tried this once. Didn't work out for me. Maybe this is not for me. I'm going to move on to the next thing. So we have, I spoke to a guy the other day. He sent me an email and he was pretty much saying to me, you know, I see you're promoting this new course. Uh, I spent so much money on courses. I'm in a financial uh, problem right now. I have a financial problem right now. I, I spent all my money on courses. Um, I know it's my own fault, but, you know, being I bought your course, you know, I was hoping you can give me some guidance or whatnot. And he said, I know that my problem is I haven't implemented what's in these courses. And I've just moved on to the next thing, bought new courses, and I haven't really taken action. I'm just learning. So I'm like, you've just answered your own question as to what you need to do, right? Stop jumping from one thing to the next. Take action on what you're learning. Be around people that are doing the things you want to uh you know, do and, and just decide, like, I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to stick with it because I know it works. So I'm always curious as to, like, what people have tried and how many times have they have they given themselves a chance to fail and then rebound from that failure and keep going? Or did that first initial obstacle cause them to just say, ah, this is not for me. I'm going to move on to the other thing. Because sometimes that's the difference between uh, people that succeed and people that just you know, always in the learning phase, just learning new things and never actually accomplishing much. Yeah, 100%. I think that's an interesting question. I'm kind of curious about that too. What what I like to tell people is as much as possible, try to set yourself up for some kind of small, quick win early on. Because like you said, like the people who, who get lucky with, with something like that a little bit earlier, that's often the motivation that will keep them moving forward versus you you try something no one bought it and then you just give up move on to the next thing so like what's a way that you can get like one person to buy from you or get that that first dollar or something that kind of propels you forward with it right and that's also a very good point for people i know you have course creators and coaches and whatnot what went what what small quick win can you help people get right people that are struggling Mm -hmm. you know as part of your course what is one small thing one small win you can help them get to give them confidence to make them want to continue to make them want to finish your course to make them feel good about themselves so you want to put that in as well it's really a it helps reduce refunds it helps like your reviews it helps people to respond to to uh refer your product to other people so it just it's a huge thing to have in your program in itself give people something easy win to, when they first start out and um it helps your business a lot yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, like in our own business with our software, we're actively trying to improve the time it takes a creator to get to their first dollar or their first student. And so, yeah, definitely that's, that's really important for, 
for everybody to consider when you're you're offering, especially like an information product. Yep. All right. Awesome. Well, Ron, thanks so much for coming on the show. Before we get going, where else can people find you online? Yeah, you can find me at rondouglas.com, 1S, rondouglas.com. Or um, if you're interested in WebinarCon, you can find us at webinarcon.com. The con is short for conference, obviously, but some people are like, oh, who, who are you conning? Short for conference, <laughs> webinarcon.com. And uh, yeah, and on Facebook, you can find me, um, you can find us at facebook.com forward slash webinarcon. All right, awesome. Thanks so much, Ron. All right. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate you guys. I'd like to take a moment to invite you to join our free community of over 5,000 creators at creatorclimb.com. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, check out the Heights Platform YouTube channel every Tuesday at 9 a.m. U.S. Central. To get notified when new episodes release, join our newsletter at thecreatorsadventure.com. Until then, keep learning, and I'll see you in the next episode.